0: everybody and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. So something a little bit different for the next couple of weeks. As a number of you know, I had the opportunity just a week or so ago to visit one of our sister churches, the CREC Church in Wichita, Kansas, pastored by Derek Hale. They'd asked me to give a series of talks under the heading, The Heart of the Matter, exploring uh, really what is um, going on under the surface, so to speak, of our Lives, that is to say, in our hearts, as we seek to pursue godliness and faithfulness to Christ. And as I was doing that, I found myself running into some of the material that I'd shared with the men of all saints at the men's discipleship breakfasts earlier this year. And some of that, of course, found its way onto this podcast um, a few months ago, but also developing it a little bit further, both um, in Uh, biblical terms some of the biblical and theological background i found myself exploring new avenues and then also some practical outworkings there were some Uh, new directions, I guess, that I took some of that uh, material just to try and um, bring it home into the practical day-to-day aspects of living the Christian life. So uh, they were good enough up at Wichita, Kansas, to record the lectures. They're actually on YouTube. The audio in the first one was a little scratchy. There was some interference on the microphone, which they fixed for the second, third, and fourth lectures. But um, the audio team here at All Saints are going to work their usual magic with... um, uh, turning it into a podcast and uh, I maybe either just uh, linking to or editing the uh, videos so that they can be viewed as well if that's how you prefer to view them and i hope you find it uh, helpful so as i said the first couple of lectures um, there will be some material that would be familiar if you heard that earlier um Uh, teaching when we're exploring the relationship between our our habits and the structures we place in our lives on the one hand and the character that is formed in us on the other but there are some uh, other directions as well which will be mixed in there and I think that may be helpful to you the third and fourth lectures get a little bit more practical But I hope that it will all be practically useful, uh, not just to the men of all saints, uh, but to everybody as we're seeking to grow in faithfulness and to consider how it is that we're wired as human beings created in the image of God. So uh, without any further ado, I uh, hand you over to uh, whatever it is that our audio team manages to pull from those uh, lectures. Uh, Once again, with thanks to the guys at Wichita, Kansas, for the opportunity to teach them. And I hope that it's helpful to you all also. The Lord bless you, and bye for now. Let us stand together and pray. Our great God, we give thanks for this evening to come and to be uh, blessed by your servant who has come to us from Dallas, Fort Worth. Uh, Pray that you would guide him in the things that he should say to us, guide us to be good listeners, to be uh, attentive hearers to the things that you would teach us through your servant. Thank you for this time for God's people to meet together, to sing, to learn, to worship, to pray, and to enjoy fellowship with one another. We pray that your blessing would be upon this conference and upon these people in Jesus name. Amen. All right. Well, let me um, first uh, say a big thank you to you all for being here and for the invitation from uh, Pastor Hale and the session here at Uh, Trinity Covenant Church, Um, I'm conscious that there's a bunch of people who were shaking hands with one or more of the elders of the church outside as though they'd never met before, which must mean that you don't, well, either the church is really dysfunctional, which I don't believe, um, or that that you don't normally come to this church. And It's a real uh, privilege to be able to speak to you guys as well. Um, It's always a a delight to uh, meet new people and the thought that somebody would come across town on Friday night and hang out with Christians they'd not met before is, well, it's a privilege to, to be here and to speak with you. Um, uh, I want to pray, if you don't mind, um, just before we jump into this topic, and then we'll uh, try and stick more or less to the schedule that's in front of us, and we'll see where that, where that leaves us. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for this opportunity to reflect and talk together, to uh, think about your word, and particularly to think about the way in which our hearts shape our lives and can be shaped by circumstances, by what we hear and do, and by many other things. Please would you lead us this evening in such a way that uh, all that is said and done is conducive to the glory of Christ, that he may be honoured, his word may be upheld, and his example may be followed more closely by us, for we pray in his name. Amen. So, I want to begin, if I may, by thinking about the Christian life in the most broad possible terms. What does it mean to be a Christian? And I want to suggest that the Christian life can be viewed as a process of pursuing what scripture calls maturity in Christ. We are not in the business simply of snatching lost sinners off the burning deck of a sinking ship. It is wonderful to do that. We're in the business of doing more than that. You find this scattered throughout the New Testament. Paul, a couple of times in Colossians says that he himself and his co-worker Epaphras are striving for the maturity in Christ of the Colossian Christians. Uh, The gifts that are given to the church in Ephesians 4, are given that we may all grow to a mature man, literally, to become a mature, united person together in Christ. Uh, Hebrews 6, we are to leave behind the elementary doctrine, doctrines and go on to maturity. So, uh, right at the outset, we're faced with this challenge. So, I'm looking around at all these young people here, and it's wonderful to see you guys out rather late on a Friday evening, um, and, and many of you, perhaps all of you, have had the privilege of being raised in Christian homes. You've never known a day when your mum and dad weren't believers, and so you might easily think, "Well, this is great because I kind of I've made the transition. I've never known the ways of darkness firsthand, and so I'm kind of I can just sort of coast towards glory." Mistake, wrong. Your life is about pursuing what Scripture calls maturity in Christ. We are all responsible to help help each other in this. Pastors are particularly called to help their congregants in this. And when you dig down a little bit more deeply, the maturity that we're supposed to pursue can be understood as a, a broad, all embracing vision of Christ-likeness, including a whole bunch of different areas. It includes overcoming specific sins, particular temptations that you've succumbed to even today or this week. Addressing specific issues of faithfulness and fruitfulness in personal relationships and in family contexts and at work. Developing an increasing capacity to handle all the demands and complexities of adult life. All the difficult things you have to do, like get a job and keep a job and work at it faithfully, even when it's difficult. Maturity in Christ, it seems to me, includes dealing with a whole bunch of issues that are sometimes categorized on the borders of mental health issues. Now, I don't want to oversimplify here, but just to note the obvious point that Scripture speaks about anxiety. And we have a tendency to clinicalize anxiety, perhaps with some justification in some situations. But I would want to suggest not entire justification in all situations. There's a, a Christian maturity element to dealing with anxiety and perhaps other aspects of our mental health. And generally, maturity in Christ is about taking the opportunity for faithful and joyful and enthusiastic and sacrificial service in every single arena of life. Really, it stems from the one text that I find myself quoting more often than any other. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. And if you've not bought your Bibles, by the way, don't worry, because this probably wasn't advertised as a Bible exposition, but hey, preachers got to preach, right? So um, uh, Genesis 1, 26. Uh, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That call to have dominion, to rule, means, among other things, to so shape the world around us, the world that we're a part of, that we bring out its latent potential. All the things that it could be, we bring to the surface by the way that we interact with it. I'm intrigued by um, uh, this great book. It's, and I was really glad to see it's on the, um, the bookstore. This is Solomon Says, Directives for Young Men. i oh, a whole flock of them here this evening. By uh, um, Mark Horne, a friend of mine. And he highlights a particular aspect of this dominion taking, which is the aspect that we'll be focusing on this evening and tomorrow morning. I'm going to read a short passage from uh, page seven. And then you'll see where he's leading us from this broad issue of dominion to a particular focused issue. We read in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, the basic charge of humanity from the beginning was to take dominion over creation, we've read that, including all the animals and so on. James, in the New Testament, points to humanity's fulfilment of the mandate to take dominion over the earth as related to control over one's speech. Now that's really interesting, because he's transitioning now from controlling things out there to, remember in James, tame the tongue. If humans are called to subdue the animals, much more should they gain control over their mouths. The thing in your mouth is a part of the created world that you've got to subdue, and it's nobody else's job to subdue it but yours. And if they're called to take dominion over their mouths, then they're likewise called to take dominion over their hands and feet. This points to the fact, and this is a crucial starting point really for our consideration this, this evening and tomorrow, that every descendant of Adam and Eve is called to rule over a portion of creation including himself, perhaps even especially himself, end quote. Now that's really significant. And you think about it, it's obvious, isn't it? It's been said many times, um, if you can't govern yourself, you'll never be able to govern others. Self-rule actually is a valuable biblical way of approaching the task of um, the Christian life, governing oneself. It's actually the subtitle of uh, the conference, which I noticed in some of the publicity, Cultivating an ordered Christian life in a disordered world. The world is in chaos. I don't know whether you'd noticed. <laughs> you had. Even here in Kansas, which apparently is the best state in the Union, most wonderful place in the world, and Wichita is the crowning jewel of that state, I'm told by thank you. Uh, but even here, even here, we're called to cultivate an ordered Christian life in a world that's disordered. We have to stand against evil and sin and darkness and chaos. And how are we to do that? Well, by becoming mature. That is to say, by taking control of ourselves and the world around us. Now, this maturity, according to the Bible, is found first in one person, Jesus Christ. It is not in the first instance something that we are to strive for. It is something that he has accomplished. He exhibits perfect maturity as the last Adam. Is there's um, suggestions of this in his miracles, when he calms the storm. Of course, we are supposed to see echoes of his dominion over creation as the creator, God. But is there not the possibility that we also see his rule as the perfect man who can speak words and creation conforms to his words? Just like Adam spoke words in Genesis 2 and all the animals, or well, their names became whatever it was that Adam had called them. So Jesus has this maturity, Hebrews 2. He has been made mature, literally, teleon, Greek scholars among you, through suffering. He's suffered in a sinful world without sinning himself, and he's got to the point of mature manhood. And he has bestowed this maturity upon us as a gift of his grace. Colossians 3, since you've been raised with Christ. Well, that means you've seated with him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Romans 6, you died to sin because of what Christ has done. And it's on that basis, and this is a crucial point, it's because of what Christ has done that we may strive to be like him. We're not trying to climb up a greasy rope ladder to try and reach Jesus somewhere up up there. He has lifted us up out of the swamp and placed us with him and we're called to live alongside him and exhibit the perfection and the maturity that he has. And we are assured that we may expect to make progress if we do so. Remember that wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians, Whenever you're struggling with a sin that feels unbeatable, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 11, where Paul lists um, all these uh, disgraceful and appalling sins. 1 Corinthians 5. And says that people like this won't inherit the kingdom of God, thieves and men who practice homosexuality and adulterers and uh, drunkards and the greedy and revilers and swindlers, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So you can see the picture we're building. We are called to pursue maturity, which Jesus is and Jesus has. And that maturity entails complete self-government. And Jesus perfectly controls every aspect of his own emotional life and the, the actions that he chooses to undertake and it's his, and he's given that capacity to us, we have it, it's ours in him. Now what's really interesting, and you could talk to Pastor Hale about this, but I'll tell you my own personal testimony, as a pastor, um, a large part of my ministry is concerned with talking with people individually, and preaching to people, and uh, in various contexts teaching, and so on, trying to help people grow in maturity in Christ, I mean what else is there to do? Through a pastor and it's remarkable sometimes people make dramatic and significant progress. it's one of the great joys actually of being a pastor to see young men grow up into not so young men and see people get married and begin family life together and their lives start to take the kind of shape that they always thought maybe it should and they now do and but not always not always. There are tragedies in the life of the church. There are tragedies in pastoral ministry. There are tragedies in many individuals' lives, sometimes explosions of catastrophe, sometimes just long, slow burn, lack of progress. It's really interesting. Why is it that some people grow wonderfully in their maturity in Christ and others don't? Why is it that two young men that go off to college, both been at the same church, and one of them comes out the other side and it's like he's three years chronologically older and 10 years older as a believer and the other one has just wasted three or four years with kind of frat parties and all the kind of dissipated subsidized drunkenness that college life seems to entail. Why is that? And it strikes me that this is a question we should try to answer. We should try to figure out what accounts for the dramatic differences between Christians, particularly in terms of how they grow in faithfulness. If we could crack this nut, if we could figure out how do we help the the Christian who's struggling with sin, or the the Christian who's had 12 jobs in five years and doesn't seem to be able to hold a single one of them down, uh, how do we help the Christian whose history of relationships is just one disaster after another? How, How do we help Maybe that's you. How do we help each other? How do you help me? Now, it's likely that there are some obvious explanations. Maybe some people just don't pray very much, or some people don't read the scriptures very much, or some people don't have very good pastors and don't hear great preaching. And tragically, that's true. Um, maybe some people just lack self discipline. I mean, there may be mundane reasons, but I wonder. I wonder if there may be other explanations that underlie the vast differences that we see between different people. And I'm not willing to accept the, well, it's just God's sovereignty thing. I, mean, I take it that none of us are going to accept that. We're all, I hope, well, maybe we're not. Okay, so I've give me two minutes and we'll get there. Um, scripture never invokes God's sovereignty as a justification for our inaction. Have you noticed that? Always. The fact that God is sovereign over our history, the fact that God is sovereign over those two young men, one of whom went to college and grew up 10 years in the space of less than half a decade, the other one, life seemed to be flushed down the toilet. That's under God's sovereign plan, but that's never a justification for us doing nothing. On the contrary, Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you. God is sovereignly at work in you, to will and to act according to his good purpose. Therefore, you should work. The pastor's got to go figure out, why Why did that, what happened to that young man? Oh, it's just God's sovereignty. No, we've got to to try and figure out what happened to him and and how we can help him and how we can stop it happening again. Romans 6, put sin to death. Well, That's a really weird thing to say because Romans 6 has already said, you died to sin. So has sin been put to death or not? Yes. And therefore we should, God has sovereignly acted in our lives by the grace of the spirit to unite us with the crucified Christ. Therefore we should cut with the grain of his sovereign work. Second Timothy one, this was a significant for me and probably for many preachers in our early days and actually continues to be. When Paul tells Timothy to fan into flame the gift that is in you through the laying on of my hands. It's probably some kind of teaching or uh, pastoral gift. I've got a gift. Thank you, Lord. Right. Time to go on vacation. Now I'll come back and waltz my way through a few sermons. No, no, that's not what you're to do, Timothy. You, God has given you this gift and therefore you are to work and labour and to fan it into flame. Um, uh, and many other texts speak in a similar vein. That God's sovereignty over our lives is never a justification for inaction. So we have a question and it is my aim, God being my helper, to try and explore this question with you in the next couple of days. Is it possible to articulate a biblically grounded, theologically informed, systematic way of thinking about how people are shaped so that they grow towards maturity in Christ? Could we articulate a a systematic pastoral theology or a systematic framework for understanding the task of Christian growth? Is there some, I don't want to say theory because that makes it sound wrong, but is there some underlying understanding that we might actually be missing part of, that if we could just grasp it we'll be able to figure out what we need to do to cut with the grain of the Spirit's work in us? And I want to suggest to you there is. Uh, Now we've got some basic questions to answer first, and these are going to occupy us for most of this first session. They're basically what you might call anthropological questions. They're questions about what is a human being? If we want to know how to fix little Johnny or little Jimmy or little Jenny or little Jane, we need to know what kind of a creature is she? Anthropology is the the doctrine of man, anthropos-man. And so we need to answer some questions about... um, what kind of thing is a person? And we're going to begin there. I keep saying begin. I'm sort of 14 minutes in. It makes people nervous when, <laughs> as we begin after half an hour and everyone's thinking, we gonna be at home before midnight. Um, in this first talk is what I really mean. And then what we'll do is we'll move on to some practical um, outworkings of that anthropology in our next session. And then we'll, we'll draw some other connections with, other areas of Christian thinking tomorrow and we're, we're also going to think about some of the major hindrances to our Christian growth, especially in the modern world, um, the, the things that distract us from faithfulness to Christ. And there are plenty of them. But let's begin with the anthropological question. You, what did you do on Friday night you were nine years old or something? I went to a talk about the anthropological question. Impress your friends, amaze your school teachers. All right. Um, what is a person, fundamentally, and, and underlying that, what is it about the person that dictates their life, their behaviour, their thoughts, their actions, everything about them? The biblical answer is the heart. That's the concrete biblical metaphor which encapsulates the answer to the question, what is it that shapes the life of a human person. Um, the um, subtitle, was it the sub- No, wasn't it wasn't, it was from the conference blurb, I think. Um, uh, Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Think about that for a second, isn't it interesting? Where do the springs of life come from? The heart. And so Proverbs 4.23 will tell us that, well, you we need to keep that thing, and it's not like the, the little two pound, Um, bright red pump in your chest it's a metaphor for something about us Um, because the springs of life flow from it it's the source we've got to deal with the source if you want to deal with what comes out of it and in mainstream popular pastoral theology in mainstream books about the christian life in sermons a plenty and blogs if you read them which you shouldn't but if you're going to well okay fair enough you will find this is just commonplace everyone talks about the heart as the source of the Christian life. Um, now, normally, there's a bit more depth to the claim that's being made. People will say, "Your heart," you know, "your heart isn't just about your emotions." Have you heard that before? Yeah, you've heard, and, and that's true. But the difficulty is, um, what the heart actually is, is not always consistently worked through. And in particular, what the things are that the heart does and which affect the human heart are not always fully understood and articulated. And if it's sounding a bit fuzzy, what I'm trying to uh, direct your attention to should become clear in a few minutes. But but basically what often happens is people will say, um, the heart isn't just about your emotions. But then when they say, fix your heart on Jesus, what do you think immediately? We all think about our emotions and we start trying to summon up the appropriately devout and pious emotions. Fix your heart on Jesus starts to feel like um, love hearts kind of hearts, doesn't it? Hollywood hearts. Well, that's not adequate. We need to go a bit deeper than this. And uh, my uh, suggestion is we should turn to the Bible. I don't suppose that's um, a particularly controversial idea. If you look in the scriptures, you find a remarkable, remarkable Collection of texts which all speak about the heart. The Bible mentions the word heart about a thousand times, over 800 times in the Old Testament, the word lev, and 150 times plus cardia in the New Testament. And what's really interesting, I mean, we can't survey them all now. That's the sort of thing a preacher would do to torture a room full of people who are all too polite to get up and leave. Like, we're going to read through every single occurrence of cardia in the New Testament, and then we're going to go, no, I'm not. But what I want to do, I want to set before you a representative selection. And if you're making notes, make notes of the passages and go and check them for yourself, because they will show you things about the heart that perhaps you didn't realize. Let me give you some examples. First occurrence of heart in the Bible. Genesis 6 verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I just think that's really intriguing intention of the thoughts of the heart. So the heart can think, and the heart can intend to do things, because it can have an intention of its thoughts. So in more technical terms, the heart has a cognitive function. According to scripture, there is a kind of mental or intellectual aspect to the heart. There is also what Um, some philosophers call a volitional aspect, and I'll try and explain all the technical terms. Volition just means having to do with the will, what we want to do. So the heart, in the very first occurrence, it becomes clear that it's not primarily about emotions, at least not in that text, it's about what I think and what I want to do. Now you can start to see that's why the heart shapes the life, first reference out of a thousand plus in the Bible. The very next verse contains another reference to the heart, this time it's the heart of God, where it says that God's heart was grieved. Now, that does suggest that there is an emotional element to the heart. So remember, we're not saying that there's no emotional element to the heart. We're just saying it's not exhaustively that. And there are many other texts that speak of the heart of man and woman in similar ways. So keep track of this. Cognitive, intellectual. Volitional, to do with actions and the will. Emotional. Next one, really interesting. In uh, Exodus 7, throughout Exodus... Uh, when Pharaoh was rebellious against God he or God hardened his heart and the problem with Pharaoh was not that his you know his feelings and emotions weren't sufficiently squishy towards Jesus the problem was that he wouldn't do what Moses said right there is a very sharp connection to actions which is what you'd expect because if the heart is about emotions and intellect and the will obviously that's going to flow towards actions isn't it you can see and in fact if it goes even further than that there's a relational aspect in Exodus 7 exodus 8 um, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron it's um 722 815 that's very interesting there because to harden your heart in that context cuts you off from relationships I'm not listening to you, Aaron. Take a hike. Take the stupid people and get back to work. So there's a relational element to the heart. The heart is that thing, so to speak, within us, that in and through which we relate to other people. So you can see all the different aspects of the heart building up. Cognitive, emotional, volitional, to do with actions, Uh, and now to do with relationship as well. And you find this all over the place. I mean, uh, Psalm 119, I incline my heart. This is verse 112, I incline my heart to perform your statutes. So there's something in the person that is directed to action, the will, perhaps. Proverbs 7, 25, let not your heart turn aside to her ways. It's the immoral woman, obviously. It's the father talking to the son. So there's an emotional aspect there, right? I mean, young men, right? There's a strong, stirring emotion. But there's also her ways, which in biblical imagery is to do with how she walks, where she lives, what she does. And you see all these different aspects of the heart showing up again and again. Incline my heart to your testimonies. That's different this time. This is to do with... You know that feeling you get when you, you really are enjoying reading the word and somebody says breakfast time and you're like oh it's just one more chapter does that happen to you maybe it has happened in the past it doesn't always happen to us does it sometimes it's like do i have to read a whole chapter today it's quite a long one um maybe i'll just read the first half because there's a convenient esv subheading halfway through to to relieve my guilt well it's funny some not funny it's tragic psalm 119 is a prayer Make me want to revel in your words. And then Mark 7, one of the most famous heart texts in the New Testament. Um, this people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And the problem is not their emotions. It's not that the Pharisees weren't sufficiently emotional about Yahweh. The problem was that they were stealing money from their own parents by dedicating it to the temple so they could use it to furnish their retirement fund, their heart is far from God because of their actions being so ungodly. So just think about the heart. Now, this is why those devotional books are right. The heart is the seat of the intellect. It is the seat of the will. It is the seat of our emotions. It is the seat of our desires. Um, it is the seat of um, the aspect of us in and through which we relate to other people. And it is the thing that drives our actions. And it's not a physical thing within us. Wouldn't it be awesome if you could just get like a kind of USB cable, which is so old-fashioned now, you'd do it with Bluetooth, wouldn't you? Anyway, or something, and you sort of plug it into the side of the head of your six-year-old and you could just directly access his heart. That'd be awesome. I speak as the father of three children and we just like, plug it in, repentance. <laughs> politeness. Oh look, oh this drop down menu of virtues I can upload. Metaphorically speaking, what we're trying to do is to figure out how do we get at the heart. And here's a critical insight. The way we get at the heart is by means of all the things that the heart does. The heart is not a thing. the the philosophers among you, the fallacy of reification is to think in concrete terms about something which properly speaking is an abstraction or a perspective on something else. The heart is not an object, it's more properly to be considered as a kind of capacity or a set of capacities we have. So the heart is this set of capacities. How do you access it? Well, maybe through all that collection of different things that the heart does. And so a lot of what we're going to be doing in the next you know, hour or so, and then tomorrow, is trying to systematize that process. Just as an aside, um, this is absolutely what you find in more scholarly works of um, biblical study. Um, Hans Walter Wolf's book, Anthropology in the Old Testament, he has got a lovely section on the heart. It doesn't quite every passage, but it's really nice. And um, you've all heard of Jonathan Edwards, America's greatest theologian. One of his um, wonderful books by Jonathan Edwards, The Religious Affections. And this is actually worth thinking about because he he takes this analysis a step further beyond the heart to the whole person. Um, He says that um, a person basically has two aspects. You have a soul and you have a body. Well, that's not controversial. Everybody thinks that more or less. There are a couple of exceptions in, in Christian history. But most theologians say, well, you've got an immaterial aspect, your mind, soul, whatever, and your body. And the soul, Edwards explains, has two faculties. It's able to uh, perceive and rationalize. It's the perception, he calls it. And then it's the inclination, which does all the emotional, volitional, desiring stuff. And then he says, the heart is like the union of these two faculties. So Edwards is so, I mean, he spends 10 hours a day for 30 years reading the Bible. He's going to be soaked in the Bible, right? Um, And so he's got, that biblical picture of the heart worked out, and he calls them um, the, those faculties of the soul. So you can always kind of break down a human being. You've got human being, you've got body, which is physical, mind or soul, which is non-physical, and then you say, okay, what can the soul do? And the soul can perceive, think, rationalise, and it can be inclined, uh, emote, decide, love, desire, and have will and the heart is the union of those two faculties. And so when he's talking about the religious affections, he's saying it's when the heart is on steroids. And true religion consists in holy affections. Well, of course it does, because it consists of a heart that is committed to the Lord, which is to say all of those things that the heart does are directed towards the Lord. So you can see this is, it's not just me making this up. It's not, I didn't just sit down in my Bible for 20 minutes and pluck some verses that said the things that I wanted to tell you. This is, Deeply embedded in our reformed tradition, is deeply embedded in the scriptures. And the remarkable thing is, it's not obvious to me at least, maybe I've missed it, but it's not obvious to me at least that we have fully incorporated these insights into our practical theology. I haven't. This was news to me thinking about this in recent years. So if that's what the heart is and what it does how do you access it? We can't do the USB stick. I'm going to keep using this fine young man as my kind of illustration. You can't do that. So what could you do? What is the normal standard reformed evangelical way of getting somebody to change their heart? The answer is, of course, teaching. Illustration. Uh, We've got some young men in the congregation. No, no, let's do something other than young men. We've got some uh, new mums in the congregation, and they're uh, awfully stressed about this new baby that have got to deal with, and it. it's extremely difficult for them, and, and their husbands don't know how to help because it's first baby. How would you know? Um, so what we need to do is have a sermon series on being Christian mum. Could you arrange that, please, Pastor Hale? Isn't that, that's the solution, isn't it? We need to. There's the men at work who need to. The men at church need to think about work. Let's have a sermon series on work. Uh, we've got an election coming up. Okay, well let's have a sermon series on Christian views of politics because the way that we try to change people's behaviour is by teaching them. Correct. Well, is that an adequate way of accessing the heart? It addresses the cognitive, doesn't it? And it certainly has biblical foundation. I mean, there is an instructional element to the whole of the Bible. I don't know if you noticed, it's full of words, like propositions, um, commands. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one. The idea is that they should hear and take note of that and they should, all right, okay, I must only have one God. Or probably it means um, the Lord your God is one, has the sense of he's the one for me. It's not to do with the numerical oneness of God. It's to do with the fact that I'm, I only have uh, love and devotion to one God. But the same point stands. Ten Commandments. Like You read them and then you try and remember them and, and then you do what they say instruction action and actually sometimes this is explicitly highlighted now, there are many new testament texts for example which specifically seem to say i'm going to teach you something so that you will just do it i'm going to access your heart by teaching i do not want you to be uninformed brothers first Thessalonians 4 13 so i'm going to explain some stuff to you about in that case it's people who um I've fallen asleep in Christ. First Timothy 4:6. If you put these things before the brothers, then you'll be a decent servant of the word. Put, put the things before them, they'll be able to see them. They'll go, Yeah, that's good, Timothy. Thank you for that. Um, command and teach these things, first Timothy eleven. Um, all scripture is God breathed, first Timothy three, useful for teaching. Uh, Titus 3 verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. So we've got an election coming up, like I said, and so we need to be reminded, let's have some teaching on a biblical view of politics. Isn't that how we tend to approach the task of Christian discipleship? We teach people things. And I think, absolutely, because scripture does, obviously, and because... Given our anthropology, given our view of the human person as body and soul, and the soul has these two faculties, and the two faculties unite as the heart, and one of the things that the heart does is to intellectually, cognitively process things. If you give it good things intellectually to cognitively process, you'll access the heart. But did you notice that that's not the only thing the heart does? And it seems to me we are missing out. We're missing out on two thirds of the ways that we could access the human heart. Specifically, think again about what a person is. If a person is body and soul, is it possible that you could actually shape your heart by what you do with your body? Could habitual bodily actions affect your heart? What you're thinking, what you're desiring, what you want to do. Is it possible, besides that, that if one of the things that the heart does is... It's the that aspect of us that processes relationships. It's the aspect of us that, you know, when when Pharaoh didn't want to listen to Moses and Aaron anymore, he hardened his heart against them. So the heart has a connection to our intellect. It has a connection to our bodies, and it has a connection to other people with whom we're in relationship. I want to put before you this suggestion and I'm going to finish this session with this proposal which is what we're going to be expanding on for the next three sessions. That the heart is subject to three kinds of influence and we're missing out if we only focus on one. Those three influences are teaching bodily habits and relationships. Teaching, instruction, advice, reading, sermons, thinking about things, habits, rituals of life, things you do when you come to worship God that you call liturgies. But not just religious liturgies, what James Smith, who's written a lot about this, calls cultural liturgies patterns of life that you habitually engage in shape your heart via your body and finally relationships what we might call if we're being more simple about it mentors mentors um, role models and what i want to do in the, the time that we have together for the rest of these three sessions is to build on these um the underlying picture of what a human being is, and explore how we might try to grow as mature, faithful Christians by exploiting these three different paths to the human heart, this triad of influences. And we'll look at some biblical material, we'll look at some more theological material, we'll look at some uh, issues in contemporary culture, and we'll try and figure out how to plot a course through the carnage so that we don't end up 10 years down the track looking back on 10 wasted years of drifting but rather we've taken every opportunity to grow as faithful mature disciples of Jesus Christ I think we should pause for a break for a few minutes we have a few minutes before a scheduled break do you want to do some Q&A discussion now just about this material or do you want to have a break let's take a break Take a break for until Pastor Hale calls you back and then we'll continue. Thank you.